The Old Testament scripture for today is 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 20. So all of the Israelite elders got together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Listen, you are old now, and your sons don't follow in your footsteps. So appoint us as a king to judge us like all the other nations have. It seemed very bad to Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So he prayed to the Lord. The Lord answered Samuel, Comply with the people's request, everything they ask of you, because they haven't rejected you. No, they haven't rejected me. They've rejected me as king over them. They are doing to you only what they've been doing to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this very minute, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So comply with their request, but give them a clear warning, telling them that how the king will rule over them and operate. Then Samuel explained everything the Lord had said to the people who were asking for a king. This is how the king will rule over you and operate, Samuel said. He will take your sons and he will use them for his chariots and his cavalry and as runners for his chariot. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50, or to do his plowing and his harvesting, or to make his weapons and parts for his chariot. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, and olive groves and give them to his servants. He will give one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and then you yourselves will become his slaves. When the day comes, you will cry out because of the king you choose for yourselves. But on that day, the Lord won't answer you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel and said, No, there must be a king over us, so we can be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us and lead us and fight our battles. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. Thanks, Amanda. I would invite you this morning to turn to that text, 1 Samuel chapter 8, and put something there. Uh, we'll come back to it. I want to invite you to also turn to the epistle text for today, which is from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. In just a moment, we'll begin at verse 13. As you turn there, um, let me just say thank you. Uh, uh, Thank you for six years. Um, it's interesting, uh, pastoral relationships are, are odd, aren't they? Um, in some ways, there's, it's a little bit like a marriage in the sense that you kind of think you know what you're getting into when you say yes, but then you realize pretty quickly, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And that's a two-way street, right? Like you had no idea, you kind of thought, but then you had no idea you'd sing Speak, O Lord, 300 times, right? Like you had no idea that was coming. Um, but thank you, and especially not just for the way that you have welcomed me and Debbie, um, but part of what you didn't know was that, you know, my mom and dad would join, and as Debbie would always say to the church, uh, you don't just get one, you get a six-pack of Daniels, and then we became an eight-pack, and now with in-laws and everything, and we're now a nine-pack, and there will probably be more to come, um, Lord willing. Um, but, um, but thank you um, 
for the ways that you have loved us and that you've allowed us uh, to learn and to try um, and to work at loving each other together. Um, the beauty of pastoral relationship, though, is that you get this moment in time to be part of a community and to be family together. And at the heart of it is to try to discern what is God doing in our midst in this moment. And so just thank you, not for your openness to me so much as your openness to what is God doing in our midst and your willingness to want to respond to that. So um, it's, it's a blessing to get to be your pastor. And I, I hope there's lots of years and speak, O Lords, to come. Um, if you have found First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, and you're able this morning, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Paul writes, we have the same faithful spirit as what is written in scripture. I had faith and so I spoke. We also have faith and so we also speak. We do this because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and he will bring us into his presence along with you. All these things are for your benefit as grace increases to benefit more and more people. It will cause gratitude to increase, which results in God's glory. So we aren't depressed. But even if our bodies are breaking down on the outside, the person that we are on the inside is being renewed every day. Our temporary minor problems are producing an eternal stockpile of glory for us that is beyond all comparison. So we don't focus on the things that can be seen, but on the things that can't be seen. The things that can be seen don't last, but the things that can't be seen are eternal. And we know that if the tent that we live in on earth is torn down, we have a building from God. It's a house that isn't handmade, which is eternal and located in heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I said last week, we're into the season that we now call ordinary time, uh, which isn't boring time. It's a time where we order our lives based on the things we've just experienced. And in this first kind of half of ordinary time, we're going to spend time in the epistle text um, that jumped into 2 Corinthians and eventually will take us almost verse by verse through Ephesians. And we're thinking about this in light of um, really next week's text where Paul will say what has become a kind of a life text, if you will, for me these last few years, where Paul will say, if anyone is in Christ, there is the new creation. Look, old things have passed away, and behold, all things are being made new. And, and so we're going to think in this journey through the epistles about... Um, that the new has come. And by the way, it dawned on me this morning, that is not a setup about the change in the sanctuary. <laughs> um, I'm excited about that, but I'm much more excited about the internal transformation that's happening as much as fun as the external will be. But this morning, I would love to go with you, um, if you have your Bible, put something in 2 Corinthians and go with me to, to 1 Samuel for a little bit. There's a... There's a film that's about 30 years old that's not very good, so I'm not recommending it. But I've seen it a couple of times, um, and it has shaped my imagination and sometimes shapes Debbie and my conversations. It's a film called Mr. Destiny, and it stars Jim Belushi, John Belushi's little brother. 
This is kind of a, a typical film, um, kind of somewhat comedy, um, about a guy who's my age, um, solidly in his 50s, trying to kind of think through his life, wondering if he's really happy with where he is, and thinking about the decisions in his past and how those have shaped the present, and is he really that happy? And he thinks back about certain moments in his life that set kind of trajectory for where he is now. And one moment in particular that he thinks about, dreams about, was he was a senior in high school and he was on the baseball team and the baseball team made it to the state championship. And in one of those kind of typical Charlie Brown kind of moments, the bases are loaded, two men are out, two strikes. And he has this moment to kind of be the hero, to win the championship, and instead he swings at that pitch and misses. And the crowd goes, ah, walks away in depression and sadness. As he's left alone, this one kind of cute girl from the stands comes down to to give compassion to him in his misery. And he ends up marrying her. Um, And they end up having kids. But he thinks back, like, what would my life have been if I had hit that pitch? How would things be different? And so in the film, his fairy godfather shows up and in his whining and complaining says, well, let's go back. Bippity-boppity-boo. Let's go back and we will relive that moment. Sure enough, he has this kind of cosmic dream moment where he relives it and he hits the pitch and he wins the game and he ends up marrying the head cheerleader. And he ends up being really wealthy and successful. But as the film goes finds out that that's not all it's cracked up to be, that there's a lot of work involved in that. And the head cheerleader is kind of high maintenance. Um, (laughs) And there's just a lot of pain that comes with that life. And so by the time the film's over, he's begging to miss the pitch again and have his old life back, right? In some ways this morning, I want to think with you about 1 Samuel as that moment that Israel, that the people of God look back at that's the moment where they swung and missed at the third pitch. It's one of my favorite texts in the scripture, and not just because I love that the people of God come to Samuel, and as you heard, the text opens this way. Samuel, you are old. Um, (laughs) I dread the day that's coming. As happy as you are today, that day will come. Scott, you are old. Samuel, you are old. You are old. It's time for you to move on. It's time for the new to come. And they demand a king, and it's very important in the text, and if you have it open, I would underline this line. We want a king so that we can be like the other nations. So that we can be like the other nations. The reason why that is so critical is because as a people, they were a people raised up to not be like the other nations. And so if I can swim in the deep end with you for just a few minutes this morning. Old Testament scholars are somewhat convinced that what we have today as the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures, what Jewish people would call the Tanakh, what these, these books that we call the Old Testament. Most Old Testament scholars are convinced they came together about probably somewhere about 500 years before the life of Jesus in the form that we have them. But they came together in kind of bits and pieces. And the form that we have them in now is... It's kind of put together, knit together in a way that asks this question. As Judah, who got swallowed up into exile in Babylon, now either sees that there's a new day coming and we may get out of this, or we are out of it, but we're now in Jerusalem and we're trying to figure out how to rebuild not only Jerusalem, but our whole lives. 
they are reflecting on this question. We have been given a do-over by God. So how did we get into exile in the first place? And secondly, and I think this is the important question, how do we make sure our children and grandchildren don't end up here again? So just a little bonus teaching this morning. I think as you study and read the scripture in your devotional life, when you get to the Old Testament, you should read it with this question in mind. Why do we think this is important to tell to our children and grandchildren? Because they're framing the Old Testament in such a way that the people, they're saying to their children, listen, our people did some good things along the way and they did some really dumb things along the way and God was at work in it all. But this is how we ended up in a mess. Some of you have had this kind of conversation with your children where you sit them down and say, now I know you look at our lives and some of it's good, but a lot of it's bad. So don't do all the things we did. And here's the list of things not to do that we did. Because we want you to live a more beautiful and robust future. And so as they tell that story, they look back, for example, and say, remember, God brought us out of, out of Egypt, but then we got into the wilderness, and what happened in the wilderness? Our people groaned and complained and whined. Now, why do you tell that story? You tell that story because now we just got brought out of Babylonian exile, and now we're in Jerusalem that's kind of a mess. And what's going to be our temptation? to groan and complain and whine. So let's not do that, all right? It doesn't make God happy, and it really kills the leadership. So let's not do that. But now they look back at 1 Samuel 8, and they say this. The key moment that turned us towards exile was that moment we came to Samuel after this period of the judges that was rugged and messy, but it was this time where God was our king and God was active in these judges. And when we needed to deliver, God raised up crazy ones, but God was clear and active and it was this kind of strange, robust time period, but God was our king. Now they come and say to Samuel, we don't want that anymore. You are old, that is old. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. I always think of this as kind of the teenage moment in Israel's life where they say to you as a parent, we love you, but you're nerds, and we want to do something else. You are old, and we're going to go this way. But what happened is in choosing a king, as Samuel says, you're not going to like it. It's going to be expensive. April the 15th is going to roll around every year. It's going to require new things of you. The king's going to take your land, take your sons, take your daughters. It's going to build up power because that's what kings inevitably do. You've invested them with power and then they want to keep it. And so they're going to participate in cycles that constantly are vying for power and they will do some good things. But ultimately, you are going to whine and complain. And Samuel says, and when you do that, God is going to say, la, 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 I am not listening. Because I told you, you would not like it. If I had time this morning, we talk a lot about what I think are the uniquenesses that Israel abandons in that moment. But let me just mention them, although I mention them almost every week. Let me just mention three. In choosing a king, they decided to abandon the sacred rhythms of Sabbath and care and trust and give themselves over. And this is part of what Samuel's saying. The king's going to demand work out of you. I have given you rest. The king's going to make you work. And suddenly you're going to be defined by 
How much you work? How big is your house? How, how large are your fields? How productive is your life? What do you do for a living? That's going to now define you. All right? You will have given up that relationship for this other. Secondly, you will not only have abandoned that, but you will abandon the life that I've invited you into, which is a life of hospitality to the stranger, especially to the marginalized and stranger who is at risk. So I've said to you a thousand times in the Torah, take care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the alien, the sojourner, the wanderer, because you were all of those things. And that's, that hospitality is going to define your life, but not when you're a nation. When you're a nation, what's going to define yourself is this, who's in and who's out, who are our people and who are not our people. Because that's the way nations end up operating. Constantly, and what happens then is you live a life cycled by the fear of the stranger. And you don't want the stranger near you because the stranger is a threat to the power and to the security you've now built. And then third, they abandon in that moment an unwillingness or the willingness to put their trust in God to now, if they're honest, Their trust is not in God. Their trust is in the chariots and the horses that the king has established. So it's easy to say you trust in God, Israel, if you now have the strongest military in the world. But let's be honest about it. Your trust isn't in God. Your trust is in what you've accumulated, which, by the way, is very expensive. And will become to dominate your life, etc. You with me? So this is the moment they've said, that's nice, but that's not how the nations operate, so we're going to be like everybody else. But now they look back and say, that was the moment. That was the moment that we set the wrong trajectory for ourselves, and we abandoned the ways and purposes of God that would lead to life, and we participated in the cycles of the nations that we keep doing, even though we know it keeps leading to death and to exile, and to abandonment, to estrangement, and to marginalization. We know that, but we seem addicted to it, and we can't get out of it, because that's what everybody's doing. And so they look back and say, if we could do it over, that's what we would do. But here's a lovely part of the story. And part of the reason I love 1 Samuel 8 so much is because Samuel, who's irritated, says, and listen up. When you get sick of this, God is not going to listen to you anymore. Although here's the thing with God. He violated that whole thing. And as soon as they were in trouble, they have a king. And Saul turns out to be exactly the way kings operate, not very good. What does God do? Calls up Samuel and says, Samuel, there's a barbecue at Jesse's house. Head on down. Because I want you to go to Jesse's, and here's the crazy part, to anoint for me and the people a new king. Now, you're not excited about this, but this is so fascinating. God, who didn't like the whole idea of kingship in the first place, is now working through Samuel, who really didn't like kingship in the first place, but now working to anoint David, who won't be the best. I mean, we could talk about some of that. But at the core will at least be within the brokenness something that moves towards the heart of God. So if you're listening well this morning, some of you are sitting here today 
And you can think of not just that time, but that time and that time, and that time and that time. Where if your fairy godfather or godmother showed up today and said, do you want to do over? You would say, yes, please. Yeah. On that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. I would love to have a do over on all of those. You don't get that. But the great news in 1 Samuel is this. God does not abandon us in those moments where if we had a do-over, we would do it differently. The mystery of the grace and mercy and activity of God is God meets us there and continues to bring us towards God's purposes and leads us in such a way that actually can redeem that so we can look back and we wish we could do something different, but in the strange way, we're actually now somewhat thankful for that happening because now God has used that and redeemed that in some kind of way in our life. Are you with me? Can you testify to that? And so I love this. Judah is saying to their children, don't do this. But if you do, Yahweh is full of steadfast love and mercy and will not allow that to be the end of your story with him. Well, that's sermon number one. Now turn to Ephesians. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. Ephesians in like five weeks. 2 Corinthians. So I need to set up 2 Corinthians just a little bit. So I've joked about this before. If there's a church, Paul... If there's a moment Paul would like to go back and redo, it may be when he founded the church in Corinth. We know that the church in Corinth from the book of Acts, we know that Corinth was one of the first churches that Paul established. And based on these two letters we have, it had to be in the top five of the most problematic churches that he established. So we know that 1 Corinthians is likely the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you know it's just full of all sorts of turmoil. The Corinthians can't seem to get anything right in this life with Christ. They can't even do, as we'll gather around the Lord's table today, they can't even do that right. And so Paul has to just keep correcting all these things. And finally, that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul finally says, just love each other, okay? (sighs) The greatest of these is just love, all right? In fact, don't do anything else. Just love each other. Now, we don't know if 2 Corinthians is the second letter. It could be the fifth or sixth letter that Paul wrote. But we know this. (laughs) They still have trouble. And Paul, after he went away and goes on his missionary journey, in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, the first verse, Paul says, I remind, let me remind you when I came, and this is in the NIV or NRSV, he calls it the unhappy visit. I came and we had that unhappy visit. (laughs) By the way, every family in this room has that moment, right? Like I could narrate, yeah, I shouldn't. But you have that family moment where you thought this is going to be great. And you think back and think that was an unhappy visit. (laughs) Paul's like, I meant to make that good, but it just turned ugly. And the Corinthian town hall meeting just went off the rails, and they were angry, and these people left, and I left town unhappy. But I'm writing to you now, and this is what we think 2 Corinthians is. I'm writing to you now to tell you two things. People keep writing me letters telling me you're still doing stupid things, so stop that. 
But secondly, I just want to tell you, even though that meeting ended badly, I love you. And I'm angry, really, because of how much I love you, right? Some of you who are parents who love your children so much you want to strangle them. That's how Paul feels about the Corinthians. I love you so much. I mean, this is my, my anger is actually a sign of my love, that, that God has so much more for you than what you're living into. But here's the key fight. The key problem is this. Paul has heard that there are some in the Corinthian congregation who've started to say really negative things about him. And he begun to say, why are we listening to Paul in the first place? I mean, every time he's here, have you noticed his clothes? Like the guy can't get his socks to match his sandals, right? And he smells a little. That guy's poor. I don't think he has two nickels to rub together. He's constantly thrown in prison. Like, why are we listening to him? Obviously, he's not blessed. Now, if I could say, if we step back to the Old Testament text, in some ways, we're set up to read that this way. That if kings, if we actually obey God, good things come to us. But hey, kids, if you make the wrong decisions, bad things will come. So make good decisions, okay? So in some sense, these are not non-Christians saying this. These are believers in Jesus saying, why are we listening to Paul? Because God clearly hates him. Why aren't we listening to these teachers who show up who look good? And they got really nice clothes, and they smell really good, and they clearly, people pay them big money because what they have to say really matters, and you will show up and not only show up on time, but pay a lot to hear it. We should listen to them and not to him. And so to understand 2 Corinthians, you have to understand Paul in the text right before this is saying, Hey, yo, ha, time out. I'm not cursed by God. In fact, if anything, in this context, you're playing that same old game of desiring what the world holds up as most important. For as Paul says earlier, we have this treasure in jars of clay. And Paul is making the argument that he actually is not in a sense, suffering because God is angry at the decisions he's making. But he makes this argument. There is newness that is coming. But that newness is so different than the old world that it can't come without struggle. It can't come without, like, a woman giving birth, like the struggle of birth pangs of a new creation. And that is why we look at Jesus, who was crucified on a cross, and we don't say, oh, he was cursed in fact, Paul will say about a chapter earlier, when Moses came down from the mountain, there was glory. There was fire and smoke and glory, right? Like it was powerful. But then it went away. Jesus came with humility, quietness, suffering. Let's not forget how he ended. But that, Paul says, that is a glory that cannot fade and cannot be taken away. And so the suffering I'm doing, Paul says, is not because I'm doing the wrong things. It's because I'm doing the right things. And if you had better eyes of discernment and you had the Spirit of God really dwelling within you, Paul says, you would be able to discern that what looks like death, this is the text for this morning, what looks like death is actually life. And what looks like suffering is actually glory. And what looks like brokenness is actually the emergence of this new thing happening. 
Thanks be to God. And so this morning, we come to these texts from all sorts of different places. I don't doubt that every one of us in this room have those moments we would go back to and we would say, I, oh, I would love to have a do-over and a do-over and a do-over and a do-over. You, you don't get a do-over. And I would say you don't, more often than not, we don't get to avoid even the consequences of those moments. But what we get is a God who meets us there and refuses to let that be the end of our story with God. And somehow in the miraculousness of who God is, God can even take those broken pieces and use them somehow for God's glory. Thanks be to the creative, all-working, all-renewing God. So I especially want to say to some of you young people, but all of us, but some of you young people in particular who are in this moment, these key moments of deciding which direction am I going to go. Let me say with God's people, go with God. Please go with God. <laughs> seek his wisdom, seek his guidance, go with God. There's a whole room of old people in here who will testify, go with God, go with God. But what we are being offered today is not a life without suffering. But what we are being offered is a life that suffers for the right things. Suffers not because of our misbehavior, but enters into the sufferings of Christ that happen because the new is coming. And you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And it's like a mother giving birth. There are pangs and aches that come with the, the advent of a new creation. So again, to some of you young people who are in those moments of choosing, don't choose that. Choose God. But that is not a guaranteed path to wealth and security and success. Choose to suffer for the inbreaking of God's new creation. As we come around the table together this morning, in some ways we embody that very story. For we come around the table and we recognize that the center of the table is broken body and shed blood, which is a reminder of our own sin, that we rejected the Messiah. Of course, what is a reminder of our sin is also a reminder of God's grace. His unbelievable, unmatchless grace. Grace that keeps taking our brokenness and transforming it. Paul in Romans will say, so should we keep sinning so that that grace could be even better? No, that's dumb. No, that's silly. But we should recognize a grace that transforms that brokenness. But we also come around the table of a new creation. 
a new family made not by flesh and blood, but by a common spirit that we saw last week that cries, Abba, Father. A spirit that unites us as sisters and brothers. A spirit that allows us in the sufferings of a new creation to give glory to God, even though it shines in jars of clay. For we know that we are suffering not for doing wrong. We are suffering in the hopes of a new creation. And so we eat and drink broken body and shed blood, wanting it to be part of us today. Would you hold the elements in front of you and we pray a prayer of blessing. Almighty God, we hold in our hands sacramental reminder of our sin. Met by a sacramental reminder of your grace. A grace that not only has the power to forgive, but the power to transform our brokenness into your glory. And we hold in our hands the sacramental reminder of a new creation. May not with human strength or ingenuity, but made only in the power of your grace and mercy and spirit. So we're around a table that makes us family, makes us a foretaste of your new creation. And so have mercy on us and and help us to no longer suffer for choosing death over life. But we come and we take these elements today confessing we are willing to participate in the suffering that brings life and overcomes death. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he broke it, he lifted it, he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat today in remembrance of his grace and mercy. After supper was over, he took the cup, he blessed it, he said, this is my blood poured out for you to preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink and live into the newness that Christ has for us today. May it be so, we pray. Make us the body of Christ. So brothers and sisters, we aren't depressed even if our bodies are breaking down, amen, on the outside. For the people that we are on the inside, that's being renewed every day. And our temporary minor problems are producing an eternal stockpile of glory for us that is beyond all comparison. Because we don't focus on the things that can be seen. And we pray that we will stop being tempted by them. But we will live into that which is unseen. 
For the things that can be seen don't last, but the things that can't be seen, they are part of the new creation. They are eternal. And we know that the tent that we live in on earth is torn down. That's okay. For our lives are built in God. And we have a house that is not handmade, but is made by the very fingers of God, and that is eternal, and that is located in heaven, in the new creation, and that which is to come. Thanks be to God. And so we build our life on him. Let's celebrate that this morning before we go. Stand with me. Let's worship together.